What makes humans tick? Why do we look at the world rationally and expect perfection and then behave irrationally and settle with our own imperfection? Well, there is a whole field of economics known as behavioral economics, which is uh, relatively new and studies the often missing variables in economic models, which is human behavior. Hi, everyone. This is Patrick Donahoe, and thank you for joining me on the final season of 2018, where we are discussing the principle of uh, property. And uh, I have an awesome, awesome guest uh, today, but it's been a wild ride, hasn't it? It's been an awesome, uh, awesome year, just two episodes to go. You know, I've been a huge fan of Daniel Ariely. I think I've mentioned him on the podcast several times, but Daniel Ariely is a behavioral economist. And he has some incredibly entertaining videos uh, on YouTube. And seriously, if you want a good date night movie, his documentary, which is called Dishonesty, which is modeled after his book, uh, Predictably Irrational, in both the book and uh, the documentary are some of my, some of my favorites. Daniel Ariely uh, co-authored the book with my guest today. And the book is Dollars and Cents, uh, How We Misthink Money and How to Spend Smarter. So my guest is Jeff Chrysler. And he is a incredibly tender, entertaining, full of humor. It's going to be a great interview. So I look forward to uh, hearing your feedback. Thanks again for your support of the Well Standard Podcast and uh, our seasons uh, this year for 2018. And we have some cool plans for 2019. So stay tuned. All right, let's go ahead and get to the interview today with my guest, Jeff Chrysler. Welcome to the 2018 seasons of the Wealth Standard Podcast, celebrating the principles of life, liberty, and property. You are listening to season three, Property. It's my honor and privilege to have Jeff Chrysler on the podcast today. We are going to be talking about a book that he wrote about a year ago. Also, just to talk about the you know, behavior in general and economics and, and money. But let me go ahead and officially introduce Jeff. So Jeff is a Princeton alumni. He studied economics and law there. He also wrote the book, Get Rich Cheating, which we'll probably get into a little bit today. And also is a co-author of Dollar and Cents with Daniel Ariely. Right now, he is the editor-in-chief for PeopleScience.com. Now, if that resume wasn't enough, he also can add to it that he's a stand-up comedian and contributor to some news networks, CNN, Fox News, and MSNBC being a few of them. So, Jeff, long list of accolades. I'm really excited to interview today. Thank you for taking the time. Thanks for having me. And uh, the way you phrase it made me think about the side benefits of not having career focus, as you get a lot of things on that list. <laughs> We'll, we'll probably get into, you know, the dynamic when, you know, when you have focus is when you're the most focused in a sense, there's kind of some paradox there. I would say in, in doing some research and, you know, understanding kind of the background of your book and your background in general, I, I find it just really intriguing that you have such a unique background. Someone that gets into, you know, law and economics, but also, you know, has, you know, a sense of humor isn't something you often find. And so it might be good for you to tell us, you know, a little bit about your background and, uh, what your educational, formal education background is, and then maybe, you know, how you got into writing books and speaking and stand-up comedy, obviously. So, yeah, why don't you give us an idea of your background with that, if you wouldn't mind. Sure. I'll go until I hear snores from the audience, to be quite a technological feat. I went to uh, Princeton, as you mentioned, and I studied economics and politics and also Russian studies there. 
and I loved studying, and then I decided I would go to law school because I wanted to be Thurgood Marshall or Thomas Jefferson. And as any lawyers that are listening may know, that's not really the direct career path that one takes. So I chose the quote-unquote traditional path of becoming a comedian. I will admit to my privilege was that I had gone to Princeton and had a law degree from Virginia Law School. It's a great law school, and I passed the California Bar. So I had a safety net of my own that allowed me to take the risk. A comedian, and I, I was in San Francisco. I did political comedy, had some success there, won some awards, made a little hay with it. And as I was, you know, struggling to pay the bills and everything, and someone approached me and said, "Hey, do you want to write a column for Jim Cramer's TheStreet.com about financial news and business news, a weekly humor column?" And I said, "No." And he said, "It pays." I said, "Yes." <laughs> and I learned to sort of dive into that world, and through that, then I got an opportunity. It was a relatively popular site and a publisher, popular. Column and a publisher approached me to see if they had you know some book ideas. Which any writers listening, I apologize. It's the easy fall in the lap route. But I then proposed this get rich cheating book, which then came out back in two thousand nine, and it was a satire. Initially, it was just sort of focused on financial crime. I mean, in two thousand nine was a great time to talk about Enron and WorldCom and and all that. But I ended up going through Harper Collins and we expanded it to include steroids and election fraud and show business and. It was a fake how-to book, sort of Stephen Colbert meets Jim Cramer meets Tony Robbins. I had some success with that. That got me sort of my first, you know, broader media attention. And, you know, as far as my own career path, then Dan Ariely got a copy of it. And Dan is sort of one of the leaders in this field of behavioral economics. Listeners might have heard of Richard Thaler last year, won the Nobel Prize in economics. He's another peer of Dan's. And Dan invited me to lecture at his class at Duke University, where he's teaching graduate business. And he didn't introduce me as a comedian, but as someone with unique wealth-building ideas. And it was a, a real light bulb moment for me because I did this satirical lecture. I went and I told these graduate business students at a top business school, you, know, "You should cheat, right? Cost-benefit analysis. No one's getting caught. There's no cost, and the benefits are millions of dollars." And you know, there was always a healthy portion of the class, a quarter to a third of them, that sort of said, "Yeah, that makes sense." And for me, it was a real light bulb moment because these weren't bad people. It was just Money sort of clouds our vision sometimes, and that had been my informal research understanding was that money makes us do irrational, crazy things. And then through this, I discovered Dan's work in the field. He wrote Predictably Irrational, that some of you may have heard of, and all of his peers. And then we worked together on small projects. Then came out with this book that came out last year in hardback, just last week in paperback, called Dollars and Cents, which is about the psychology of money, the way that we misthink money and. The psychological biases and cues that lead us, even the most intelligent of, even most informed about finances, we make mistakes, and that then, and I'm, we're almost at the end of it, <laughs> end of my journey, or at least the catching up to now. As that publication was approaching, I really wanted to build on the momentum that I had working with Dan and the fact that I'd really become a real believer in the power of these behavioral sciences. Not, you know, there weren't silver bullets, but there was certainly a new tool in our toolbox to solve a lot of problems. And so I got the opportunity to run People Science, and what People Science is is a platform where we discuss behavioral science and the future of applying it to everything from personal finance to organizational design, employee engagement, loyalty, habits. We get professors and, and researchers talking to practitioners and people in business and those that do know, and it's very accessible. I think the reason why I was brought on is to bring the, whether it's humor or just that that ability to speak in a way that's not academic jargon. And so that's really been my obsession now. That and talking about what I've learned and what I think the great lessons are in behavioral science, 
in addition to, I still do comedy, some traditional comedy, but I think I've sort of woven it together into this piece of where I'm at. And that is as short a version as I can get it. No, that's amazing. It brought up a lot of questions. Let me start with a few. So, you know, at Princeton, right? Princeton is, you know, uh, Paul Krugman, I, I think was probably the most notable economist mm-hmm. that comes from Princeton. Alan Blinder was my econ 101. He used to be on the, the Fed. Remember Nanke? I didn't get his class, but he was teaching there at the time. Who okay, was the well, Fed chair, and Alan Blinder was like an advisor to Obama. Anyway, point so, being, so it's, yeah, and, and the reason why it's interesting is I look at behavioral economics, and I, I don't recall. I don't think you said what years you were in school. I was probably mid two thousands ish. Thank you for saying that. No, it was in the nineties. <laughs> so yeah, so it's one of those. You know, then I don't know if, if really the understanding of behavioral economics was really known. I mean, psychology. It wasn't. It wasn't. Yeah. And so that's where my question is because you know I think the thing that really help me understand how important like human behavior is, was there's this guy that wrote for the economic policy journal and he wrote an article. This is, this is years ago. The point of the article is you have a lot of these economic models that are a principle base are, are math based, but yet they're measuring it's rational measurement to irrational behavior, which is human behavior. Right. Mm-hmm. And, and so you're trying to, you know, essentially try to you know govern people rationally when they don't behave rationally ever. Right. So it's interesting where, you know, you come from that school of thought. I mean, what was it that flipped the switch for you where, mm-hmm. you know, you started to make connections that, you know, even economics is known as the dismal science, but I would say the economics is just measurements of, of human behavior in a sense, right? Where did that light bulb come on? The short answer is it was probably around being exposed to Dan Ariely's work and his peers, but the longer answer is that I think I had the same instinct as you that Behavioral economics was not an offering when I was in college or law school. I mean, it really is only emerged in the last decade or so. And even then, it's still emerging. But, you know, for me, when I studied traditional economics, even though I got good grades and I understood it and I could explain it, it didn't click with me because, you know, the basis of traditional economics is if I'm in a supermarket and the milk is 20 cents cheaper at the supermarket next door, I'm going to go next door. No, I'm not. Like, I'm a lazy human. Like, I don't want to be bothered. There's this it's not a number-based decision and it's an emotion-based decision. And that was something I sort of knew and felt, but never really necessarily articulated. And then I discovered behavioral economics, which is essentially not ignoring traditional economics, but marrying that to human psychology. So it's about our decision-making processes and trying to balance between sort of what we say we'll do. You know, we say we'll go for that 20 cents, but then what do we actually do? What is our decision in that moment when emotions play into it? A great example of the difference between sort of that traditional model and the real model is, and this is anecdotal, but when I've spoken to like investment firms, almost universally, I'll go to a big investment firm and they talk about their best performers, the people that advise high wealth individuals how to spend their money. So the employees that tell others how to invest their money, there is routinely a, a large number of those employees who are terrible at managing their own money. And to me, it says they know what to do, but in the moment they get caught yes. off guard by emotions and needs. And it makes sense, right? Like I can tell Joe X, hey, here's how you plan for your kid's college and your retirement. But then when I'm thinking about that's my kid, right? that's my future, right? it feels different and we do things differently. And it just shows how like you have to have that emotional part of it, which I think is unsettling to those that want things to be an easy answer, right? Economics can provide an easy number checkbox answer, but that's not how we really live. And that's where maybe we'll just touch briefly on this before we get to mm-hmm. the dollars and cents. But writing, you know, a book, even though it was satirical in nature, 
during the financial crisis, you know, everything you said in that book was, had truth to it, even though there was a, you know, a humorous spin. And so you look at what occurred there. What were some of the things you learned during that period of time? Because it sounded like that occurred before meeting Daniel Ariely. Yeah. Pick up on some things there where you saw just like, why would this person do that? And why would they get, what are some of the things you saw right during, you know, as you were preparing mm-hmm. to write the book? Or get rich cheating, right? insider trading or made offer. I mean, there's a million examples, but you know, what were some of the things that enlightened you at that point? Sure. <laughs> there was a lot. And it's stuff that still reflects in our society. I mean, on the one end, there was this cultural drive to have value in your whole life be measured by financial worth and value. And, you know, it's understandable. Money is measurable. You can look at your salary and see a number, whereas you can't look at happiness and meaning and purpose and put a number to it. So it's understandable. And, you know, that the discussion of whether American culture breeds that more than others is a longer conversation. But the point is, it was there. At the same time, people's ability to reach these sort of standards wasn't always being met. So it drove people to want to try to find shortcuts. So on the one hand, there was that sort of broadly cultural thing that why would people want to cheat? And then the psychology of cheaters themselves, whether they're a Bernie Madoff, an Alex Rodriguez, a Lance Armstrong, any number of other CEOs or or people in Hollywood. I mean, look at someone like Harvey Weinstein, who maybe didn't financially cheat, but like this mentality of I get away with something, I don't get caught, and then I'm going to get away with more. And that, that mentality of like abandoning a sort of ethical and moral core and pursuing this sort of bottom line and power dynamic was exposed to me in a way that I didn't expect because it was in all these different industries and fields and all these ways that, you know, everybody, I think all of us have cheated a little bit. You know, we fudge a number here and there, but it takes a certain special someone to like go above whatever that, you know, two or 3% jump is to making it all their life. Yeah. I, I mean, I think Daniel, and I want to get into Daniel Ariel and your experience with him, but yeah, that was, I've probably watched that documentary, the dishonesty documentary, you know, a mm. bunch of times, but it's, but it's one of those, yeah, I think we understand that we're irrational and emotional, but yet we look at the world sometimes through a lens of like you know, perfection. And you know, this is what a person should do. This is how they mm. should be. This is what they should have done in this situation. It's fascinating. But question I think more applied to, you know, the dollars and cents book is what was your perspective on money personally going into that first book? Right, maybe I've been writing for the Jim Cramer blog, but writing the first book, how did it start to shift and then maybe get into the story with Daniel Ariely and how your perspective shifted with the experience with him helping you write the book? Well, I would certainly say my own view towards money and my own behaviors around money has changed dramatically, probably the most in the process of writing the book about the psychology of money because I've become aware of my own biases and mistakes and I certainly still make the mistakes. But throughout, I mean, I'm not even sure if this has to do with as much of what I've worked on as much as just a a maturation is understanding sort of where money rates on the importance and how you value things. You know, I, after Princeton Law School, I was given an offer, I was offered these big corporate law firm jobs. You know, I was a 24, 25 year old, people like, here's a bunch of money, your life is set if you want to be a corporate partner. And I, I turned it down because, you know, again, whether you call it privilege or stupidity, that was not important to me. And I don't think I ever really understood why. And the more that I looked at the way the money impacted people and sort of made people skewed in their priorities, the more I realized that maybe there was some instinctive core to what I decided. It gets a little, it's a little maybe more psychology, lie on the couch and talk about your mother than (laughs) you were asking. 
but I certainly had my own relationship with money evolved through seeing how people acted immorally and unethically with it. And then when I worked on Dan's book and I just saw all these studies about the mistakes we make, the way that we fall for sale prices, the way that brand names affect us, the way that the descriptions of things and the setting of things impacts our value. This concept of the pain of paying, which is how when we pay for something, it stimulates the same region of our brain as physical pain. And that should make us stop and think if it's a good decision. But instead of feeling that pain, what we do is numb it with credit cards and auto pay and easy pass and Apple pay and how all this financial technology that helps make spending easier makes spending less thoughtful. And just seeing that behavior in my own self and that, you know, that technology, that technology, the same idea can be used to make retirement savings easier and less thoughtful, which can be positive. So it provided me a new perspective on the way that I was both earning and spending and saving my own income, as well as seeing sort of what was happening, what was developing around me. So it sounds, you know, I know that, I, that Ariely talks about this a lot in his other books, which is more of the pursuit of not the, the monetary side of it, but more of, you know, the end result, right? Or the, the lifestyle, the, the meaning behind it, your family or a, a sense of stability for your family or your family in this situation or being able to do this, this, and this as, the, as kind of the flagship as opposed to the money itself. Is that an, an accurate statement as far as one of the themes of the book? Yes. I think that that is something that we bring up sort of towards the end as like a, a big picture of you. I mean, the book isn't advising you to not worry about money. It's, it's advising you to understand how you think about money so that you know you can identify what your own you know failings and biases are and then try to address those and try to create systems and everything i mean there certainly is i think both dan and i have in our own way an appreciation for the stuff that doesn't involve money right that involves experiences and what's actually fascinating about the work i've done at people science now is that while in the book i didn't really delve into that too deeply there's a little bit about there's some books about happiness that we reference but at people science, I've looked more in this field about non-monetary rewards. Essentially, it's always been in the sense of uh, like engagement and motivation employees, but just all these studies showing that cash bonuses are not as effective as giving non-monetary bonuses as far as making people motivated and feel fulfilled and have purpose and connected to their work. You know, like a $10,000 bonus is not as effective, if you will, as a $7,000 all-expense trip paid trip to Hawaii for that employee's family. And if you think about this, there's plenty of you can think from both perspectives, right? The company saves money, right? That's the bottom line. But the employee gets this unique experience and they get to anticipate the trip and then reminisce about the trip and enjoy the trip. And it's all this wealth of value to them in addition to making them feel like, oh, my company really values me more than just a check does. So yes, in the book, there is sort of obviously a little comment we have at the end about like, you know, it's not just about money. Your life should have other things of value. But then since then, I've learned that there are real ways that people are measuring this and trying to think about how we can use it to impact our lives. Not everybody can be rich, right? So if you can't be rich in money, how can you be rich in life? And that's what ultimately, I think if you were to, to you know, get people to be open and authentic about it, you know, they, they would describe you know, those, whether it's uh, experiences or trips or things with their family, those is really what they're after, not necessarily the money. But maybe, you know, as you, you know, look at a year into the book, actually over a year now, what are you seeing as, maybe not at an individual level, but any level, how people are taking what they're learning from the book and applying that? And like I said, at the individual level, business sure. group level, how has that impacted people? 
In a few ways. I mean, one, I get very, my own sense of value and reward when I hear from people both I know and don't know, they'll reach out and mention that a particular chapter and the book is sort of divided the middle of it into chapters which address sort of a individual bias or principle, the way that we make a money mistake. And people respond and say, oh, that story really connected with me. Or, or sometimes they're jokingly like curse me. Like we have a story about like people that fall for sale prices. And that is the one that most people reach out, but others do other ones are like, yeah, that's me. Like I recognize myself in that story. And that's really rewarding to me because that what ends up happening is, you know, this isn't a book that gives that, you know, Susie Orman type, like put 10% here, put 3% here. It shows you what you're doing. And so what I found is these individuals, they start seeing their own mistakes and maybe they still buy those sale items. But our hope is that gradually they start to change their behavior. Or if they realize it's a big problem, they put sort of design ways to check themselves. So I think it's had the result on an individual level of people recognizing their own mistakes that maybe they didn't see. And then that, that slowly but surely is helping them change those behaviors and recognize mistakes. On an organizational level, I've spoken to a bunch of organizations of all different sorts, and it's been likewise rewarding because companies don't often realize the impact of financial stress on their employees. If you think about anybody here listening, if you have stress, whether it's you're arguing with your spouse or you're worried about money or where do your kids go to school, whatever it is, it affects your work, right? You can't think about it. And if people have financial stress, it affects their work. And if you know the book and the talks that I give and some of the advice that's in there can help alleviate that stress and at least alleviate the uncertainty, which is often the biggest cause of these mistakes we make is that like, we don't know what to do. We don't know how to value our retirement. We don't know how to value a, a shirt at JCPenney's. We don't know how to value medicine or homes. Like these numbers that get thrown at like, it just seems these decisions are just hard. And if we can provide some tools to not provide the answers, but at least help that difficulty be a little easier, that is, has an immense potential to impact not just those people that are making that decision, but their family, their friends, their community, their workplace. And so it's been great to see that on an organizational level, people recognizing the value in that too. It's interesting that you still have, you know, the predominant thing people think about daily is money. I think there's studies out there that show that. And it comes down to what is the underlying anxiety and fear? And it seems, I don't know, I mean, you have a much bigger perspective, it sounds like, on you know, what generally is happening with people, especially in the US, right, when it comes to, to livelihood. Because it seems like you know, the more technology that we have, the less it's doing for people, in a sense. And especially you know, money was a, a primary concern 20 years ago. It's still the primary concern today. But again, those concerns, those anxieties, you know, in a sense are irrational. So do you see a shift one way or the other and just like the general consensus that people have in regards to their, you know, just to their financial well-being and what to do about it? I do. I definitely think that attitudes towards money are changing. I think there's a cultural shift and I won't speculate on what's the real driving force, but, you know, from people not working at a company for their whole career anymore, you know, people go for seven years as sort of the itch to millennials not valuing buying homes as much as they used to and owning property to people still feeling the waves of that financial collapse in, in 2008, 2009. I, I think that people are looking at just the accumulation of wealth as being a less of a life goal. I think that people are starting to like appreciate experiences a little bit more. I should say this, when I say people, I understand I'm sort of segmenting. There are still a lot of people that live in a scarcity mindset, we call it, and that are struggling to just survive. 
and to them their psychology of the money is very different and they have different needs and the idea of trading off a 10,000 bonus for a $7,000 Hawaii vacation is not in that world. But even they face the same psychological like barriers and biases. What I find fascinating is, and I have spoken to some groups that, that serve the lower income people, is that in their own way, these communities have already recognized these problems and tried to find ways to solve them because they have to, to survive, right? They can't overspend as much as people that have more income and more wealth can. But that distinction aside, and I just want to make that clear, I recognize that difference. I think that it has been shifting some. I don't know what the source is, whether it's reality TV or Trump presidency or what, but I think that the value on wealth for its own sake has diminished. And that could be wishful thinking, but I think there's some truth in that. So this might be a curveball, but I, I look at over the hundred years or so, we've delegated lots of responsibility in a sense to government in regards to our well-being. And you now have, you know, I would assume kind of an ominous problem of challenge of you know social security or an aging generation that has insufficient resources you know you as, an, as kind of an economist you know looking toward the future do you look at kind of the demographic shifts that are occurring and do you do you see some challenges that may not be you know evident right now but most likely coming in the future and again it's like you can you know speculate at the same time it's you know if you have lack of resources and you're old right you're going to want as much help as possible. And if that group is powerful, then they're going to influence policymaking. And, and that sets off a course of events that getting even worse. But how do you look at kind of the social demographic shifts and how it relates to, you know, what are some of the challenges people will ultimately have and how will that impact just society? Sure. Sure. Well, I don't know that we have enough time to really delve into all of our (laughs) government spending, but I think the idea that our demographic shift and growing older population and older population that's living longer, therefore living longer past retirement is very valid and important to recognize. And for my own self and my own work, I tend to bring that back to the individual and the fact that we individually don't plan for retirement as a basic. So like we don't really plan for the future. We don't save, you know, I don't have the numbers handy, but there were some none one number like American savings rate, like people would have to work until they're 82 to afford retirement and the average life expectancy is 78. So you're, you're in the negative. All that aside, it's just a matter of like, we don't individually connect to our future selves. Part of the reason why there's no self-control and there's a lot of awesome studies about this. I won't bore your listeners is because we're not connected to like, you know, 30 year old Jeff doesn't really know or care about 70 year old Jeff or figures, you know, a 30 year old Jeff's not going to worry about it, but 50 year old Jeff will take care of it. And 50-year-old Jeff doesn't either. 50-year-old's like 60-year-old Jeff. So we don't connect. And, you know, there are certain tools out there to try to make us connect. Or, you know, there are cultural ways of addressing that if we so choose. In Australia, for instance, I was once offered a job in Australia and they gave me a salary. And then on top of that was the automatic retirement savings. So let's say it was a $100,000 salary plus $12,000 into retirement. So it wasn't like it's set up here, which is $100,000, and then we'll take out $12,000 if you so choose. It was an automatic on top. And that sort of framing and the fact that it becomes default, it just, if you can't change individuals like perspective, which, which I don't really believe we can change human nature, we can just understand human nature and then create systems so that we get to a better outcome. So that was a cultural and societal decision to do that. Is that the best approach? Is that the only approach? I don't think so. I mean, I I think Americans would 
have a hard time accepting mandatory retirement savings. That's not in our nature to like that. But nonetheless, somewhere in the middle there in this particular issue is a solution that recognizes that if left to our own devices, we're not going to save for our future. And if forced to save for our future, we're going to revolt. And that's right. As I was you know, going through your book and learning more about you, and of course, exposure to Daniel Ariely, I think understanding, being aware of your own behavior is one thing, being aware of others' behavior is another. But I think there's some common themes, right, that is evident through your books, but also history. And I look at you know, the future and there's tremendous opportunity because there are these ominous challenges. We get, there's huge opportunities if you, you know, understand how people are going to react and behave in certain circumstances or have an idea at least so that you can position, whether it's a, a business or a technology or some sort of service that would help in those circumstances. So, you know, as I look at people science, it's understanding people allow you to figure out ways to provide value to people. If you know how right. to behave, then you just, you know, provide some sort of you know, service that's going to help them. Yeah, I would agree with the caveat that the way you describe it makes it sound a lot easier than it is in practice. <laughs> you know, it's, and this is actually, I bring it up because it is one of the challenges facing the field right now is there are people that think, I'm not saying this is what you're expressing, but people think it's sort of off the rack solutions. It is a very, in order to apply this stuff, it's very context driven. You know, like a certain design nudge, if you will, and that's the term, a certain design nudge that works, let's say, even a specific, like works in a toy for Toyota dealers, right? That nudge probably won't work for high-end BMW dealers. Even though they're yeah. both car dealers, it's these little tweaks. And yes, to the point that like, if you understand sort of human behavior and you understand the context, you can find a solution that's going to provide value to all the stakeholders. But the process isn't as easy as like just snapping your fingers. The process still requires that experimentation and the deep understanding of both the science and the industry and the field. And there's great promise in there. It's hard work, but yes, the potential outcome and potential impact is great. Man, I have so many questions on that front. I know we don't have all day. All day. We'll talk again. I'll write another book. I'll write a pamphlet. Write a pamphlet. <laughs> <laughs> no, because you're, you're totally right. And I would say, you know, the general you know, awareness of people, I, I would say, in a sense, is increasing because, you know, our interconnectivity has magnified. And, and so people's tastes are going to change, right? There's tendencies and preferences are going to you know, change over time, maybe even at a rapid rate. There's so many variables, but ultimately, if you understand more about how people operate, right, it gives you an opportunity to provide value in those circumstances. All right. So with the remaining time that we have, I'm curious, fascinated just by your you know, inner working with Daniel Ariely, like having direct access, writing a book with him. Picking his brain, I'm assuming there's probably conflict in, you know, some of the stuff you wanted to write about and what he, you know, said was incorrect or, or, or had another opinion about what was, could you just maybe describe as we finish up just, you know, your experience with Daniel Ariely and what you've learned from him that was in the book, but maybe, mm-hmm. you know, some other context as well. Sure. The biggest problem with working with Dan Ariely was that he was not a problem at all. Dan is great and giving and kind. And the writing process took a long time because he essentially, you know, we had conversations. He gave me a bunch of research and a bunch of ideas and he gave it to me. I said, go write this, write, give it a pass and then we'll go through it. And in some ways I probably would have worked better if he was a lot meaner <laughs> and, and didn't put it all because, you know, when I wrote the book about cheating, I essentially created this field of cheating and therefore became the leading thinker in it. And then my writing process involves me puffing myself up and being like, I'm the greatest. What I say is personal. I could just write with confidence. When I was writing about a field where I knew there were experts that knew 
10 billion times more than me and I was writing with one of them, it became hard to write that confidence. So the biggest problem with the, writing the book was my own confidence in getting the ball rolling as a creative person. And I, I very tongue in cheek say that's Dan's fault because he believed in me. You know, ultimately we didn't have a lot of, once I got over that hump, we didn't have a lot of a conflict. I mean, you know, moving things around, what's emphasized, you know, I relied on him to make sure that what I was saying about the science was accurate. And of course that was, you know, his decision too. There was one joke that I knew I probably wasn't going to work that he nixed that I'm glad he nixed because I knew we shouldn't do it anyway. And no, I won't share what it was. It'll be for our next podcast. You can ask right. me that. But the process was great. We went through like four different formats of the book. You know, at one point it was like, let's write half the book as just a story of a family, then go back and analyze it. We wrote one, or I wrote one version. I didn't get too far, but I wrote enough of it that was awesome, but never held together. It was basically the book was going to be a conversation between God and the devil. And like on the one hand, it's like God is, you know, being the, is the good side and the devil is the temptation and like it affects our decision making. It, it was, there's no way I was going to make this work, but it was a great try. But working with Dan was great, both leading up to it and in the process. And since then, he is a very giving kind of like next to the word mensch in the dictionary should be his picture. He's smart. He's one of these guys that we've all had moments, I think, of extreme like lucidity and clarity where we can, anything that comes to us, we know how to respond. We can speak clearly and distinctively. And like we can go on a five minute tangent and pull it back to where we were. And we had those moments. Dan seems to always be like that. And it wow. is incredibly impressive. He has a fascinating life story that your listeners should check out how he came into this. In very short, he was burned over a lot of his body. And then he observed the way that his nurses treated his wounds. And just, he's a fascinating guy. And it's been great working with him. And we've done a few things since then. It's been a real pleasure. And I would say, what I'm picking up on, yeah, I think he tells a story in the predictably irrational. Mm. Yeah, about his burns, yeah. Yeah, but, but looking at, I mean, I love hearing him speak. There's, you know, so much you can detect just by the way you feel about his, you know, what he says and his personality and what he's talking about. But it sounds like, you know, you went in with a, a really high bar, right? And, and an environment where you wanted to write accurate, but also write, you know, that it would be something that, you know, he puts his stamp on us. I think sometimes that environment elevates our performance and in, uh, in a sense, or what we're able to do as far as output is concerned. But I like to talk about that, that a lot is putting yourself in an environment that kind of forces you to expand. Yeah. Right? Because I think left to our own devices, you know, most people have that, you know, sense of apathy so that they, you know, won't do anything. But if they're put in a situation where they're kind of forced to do it and, you know, either perform or not. I look at how fascinating and how amazing the understanding of human behavior and how people think and what they're thinking about and what drives them. It's becoming more evident. Now you have, you know, a lot of like empirical science around it as far as being able to measure, you know, the stimulus and responses. And I know he does, you know, Tons of those different experiments or you know, mm. case studies, but I would say in the end, money is still the the predominant issue that people are having. Whether it's uh, right. worse, whether it's you know breaking up relationships, business failure, and it, you know, I, and I think it really comes down to how people are thinking, how they're behaving. So I think this science is so powerful, and kudos to you for taking on you know editor and, and chief of People Science because you know I would say the more we're aware of each other and our tendencies and how we behave you know, the more we're going to help each other in a sense. So I'll maybe leave you, you know, with kind of the final word on, you know, what you're doing as far as people science is concerned, you know, what you're up to next, what's, you know, motivating that with the mission is and so forth. Sure. I would certainly invite everyone to check out people science. We have a, a newsletter if you want to you know, get bothered once every couple of weeks, because 
it's a place where I'm trying to make this stuff accessible and help people think about how it applies to their lives and their work and their organizations. And, you know, I really want it to be a conversation because I know that I don't know the answers. And I think that even the, the academics recognize that, you know, their highly refined research doesn't apply to everything. But it is, as I think I said earlier, it is a really powerful tool. It's not the only tool we should use to affect change in our lives and society and work. But I think it's a really effective one just to like understand how people are and like how we actually make decisions and, and that our emotion plays into so many things that even when we deny it, right? Like financial advisors, it should just be numbers, but there's emotion there. And, and that's okay. That's good. That's what makes us beautiful creatures and not machines. And so I think the more we recognize that, the better we'll be. And my standard line, I think I already used it on you, but I'll, I'll repeat it, is that I really don't think we can change human nature, but we can understand human nature so that we can make our environment and society and systems work for us instead of work against us. Well, Jeff, you're doing great work. Thank you. Thank you so much. Thanks for writing your books. And uh, we'll post all the links on the show notes. But again, go to people peoplescience.com, jeffchrysler.com, K-R-I-E-S-L-E. No, K-R-E-I-S-L-E-R. Oh, okay. Sorry. K-R-E-I-S-L-E-R. Let's start over. Let's start the whole thing over. (laughs) (laughs) And then, you know, if you're doing some comedic stuff, I'm sure you, you know, post stuff on social media. So we'll put all the social media links there as well, but it also links to buy the book. Jeff, awesome to have you on. Thank you so much for your time and best of luck with everything. Thank you so much. Thank you for joining us as the Wealth Standard Podcast spends all of 2018 celebrating life, liberty, and property. Be sure to leave us a review on iTunes, and we'll see you on the next one.